May the grace and peace of Jesus be with each of you. I invite you to open your Bibles now to the Gospel of John, <clears throat> chapter 17. Uh, pardon me. That's a typo in the program, by the way. It's John chapter 7. Gospel of John chapter 7. And our text this morning is verses 14 through 24. It's another one of those moments in which I have some regrets about not sticking with the lectionary, especially after the the Romans passage. Um, However, we'll continue our study of the Gospel of John. And... It's one of the, also one of those points at which you realize all of Scripture is tightly woven together. Uh, and the text for today uh, does tie very well to the Genesis and Romans passages as well. So the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verses 14 through 24. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. The Gospel of our Lord. If I give this sermon this morning a title, it's something like this. Jesus and the world, a life or death matter. John chapter 7 and 8 kind of form a subsection of the Gospel of John in which John is pulling some things together to help us truly sort out the identity of Jesus. Who is this man? His family, in the previous section, particularly his brothers, have not believed in him. And as such, they've said, listen, you're doing some spectacular things up here in the remote country of Galilee. Why don't you go down to Jerusalem? The festival is on. The crowds are coming from all over the Jewish diaspora. Go do them there. If you think you're really somebody, go where the people are. And John makes it very clear, they said that from a place of unbelief. It's not that they believed in Jesus and wanted him to be known. They did it from a place of unbelief. Here, Jesus is in an exchange now. He's gone up to the feast, the Feast of the Tabernacles. He's gone up to the feast at the very height of the feast, in the middle of the feast. And this exchange is now with Jewish leaders. And again, the ESV translates it simply Jews 
And it's not the people, it's the leadership. Mostly Sadducees likely, with a few Pharisees tossed in, some scribes. It's the authorities in Jerusalem. And this is a very poignant exchange. Then next we'll see there's an exchange with the people broadly. And then finally in chapter 8, with the woman caught in adultery. This Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, sometimes called ingathering, is a harvest feast where the people are gathering from across the Jewish diaspora to celebrate God's care for them during their wilderness journey. In the wilderness for 40 years. And it's supposed to be a time of great joy. And here Jesus shows up and causes them a fair bit of consternation. He's under suspicion for two very specific things. For the things he says and the things he does. So let's be honest, it's pretty much the person, right? What a person says and what he does. That's what's presented. And Jesus is in trouble on both fronts. And in this passage, in a very powerful yet simple and succinct way, he defends his words and his actions. The world, which John is contrasting Jesus to, we find shows up right in the heart of the religious community. The world is not the non-Jewish pagans. It is an attitude, a posture, that is against God, against the Lord Jesus Christ, and shows up in the most religious of people in this passage, and honestly, still in our day. The world is not easily identified sometimes, but its motives, its agenda is always against Christ and not with Jesus. And I want you to note, uh, one commentator says the issue here is elitism. And I think that's probably one way of looking at it. The world has its elites, its power figures. You mess with the elite, you're going to be in trouble. And these Jews do represent the religious elite. And elitism becomes a poignant problem. But I want you to notice how this presents itself. Here are Jewish leaders from the people of God, representing the law of God, representing the words of God, shepherding the people of God. And they are ready to stand in judgment of Jesus himself. They're standing in judgment of him. They're suspicious of his teachings because they say he's not adequately educated. They're suspicious of his healing of the lame man on the Sabbath day because he lacks a regard, an adequate regard for God's law, they say. And they're willing to stand in judgment on Jesus. Just take a moment to let that settle in. Jesus, the very Son of God, eternally present with the Father, now incarnate among his creation, being judged inadequate, insufficient by those whom he's created, by those whom he's sustaining 
those very lives that he holds in the palm of his hands, with the breath that he gives them, look at him and say, you're not enough, you're not sufficient, you're not true, you can't be trusted. That's, that's the human audacity. It's still the human audacity. And let's be honest, it shows up far too close on some given days in our own experience and journey. When, when we say, Jesus, I'm not sure I can trust you right now in this moment, in this situation, in this difficult circumstance, in the face of this suffering, we're saying, Jesus, we're not quite sure you're sufficient. When we as a people of God find the way hard, or we find relationships hard, we find it hard with other believers, maybe in the church sometimes, that's usually where the rub comes, sometimes with people in other churches, but with the people of God, is Jesus enough to center us, to hold us together, for us to persist in faith and love? I spent the early part of the week at a conference in Baltimore. And it's the third, third year I've been there. And it's kind of an ecumenical conference that people come together from all across denominations, uh, mostly formally trained scholars doing papers. And then there's a couple people like me that show up uh, who come from the carpenter's shop rather than from the seminary. Wonderful time, very thought-provoking. And the topic this year was community in a time of disease and division. Okay, very poignant, very poignant topic. And it becomes a poignant question for us when so much of our culture is fragmenting and so many churches represent the cultural fragmentation. Okay, we, have, we now have Republican churches and Democratic churches. We now have churches that are more politically oriented than they're Jesus-oriented. That's a form of anti-Christian elitism that says my political posture is more important than the unity that Jesus died for and prayed for and gave himself up for. Okay, And it's a way we kind of snub Jesus when we give up to those sorts of divisions and divides. Well, Jesus certainly understands what's going on here with these, with these leaders. He understands it extremely well. They don't believe him. They don't believe in him. They don't believe he's Messiah. They don't accurately identify him for who he truly is. That's the central issue here. And I remind you, as we almost always do, that, Jesus, that John is writing this book this record, he says very clearly in John 20, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Because when you do, you have life, eternal life, the Zoe, the eternal, boundless life of God being poured out in you. So Jesus shows up here midweek at the peak of the festival. Again, we don't know why he said to his brothers, I'm not going now. I'm not going with you. I'm not going with the whole crowd from Galilee. My, the time isn't right, he said. But literally three days later, he shows up right in the heart of the temple where the crowds have gathered 
and he's there teaching. So fully on display, uh, publicly engaging the people. And some scholars suggest that he may well have done, chosen that time because had he gone early, the leaders of the Jews didn't have the, the social pressure from all the people who came who were in favor of Jesus. They may have just quickly nabbed him as he came in and tried to murder him, and it wasn't his time. Okay? It's very possible. Jesus shows up. The Jews are there from the dispersion from all over. Males from all over the Roman Empire have gathered. And there are many people here who are defending Jesus, believing in him. And so the scene would have been a huge scene. And Jesus boldly begins to teach in the temple. He chose this time to go to the feast. Uh, Someone else pointed out that maybe we shouldn't be surprised that he shows up at the very peak of the festival in the temple because Malachi, Malachi 3.1, if you're familiar with the words of Handel's Messiah, that he pulls the story together. These words, the Lord whom you seek shall, shall suddenly come to his temple. There he is, among the crowds, teaching. The first challenge they have for this man Jesus, and this is the Jews, how is it that this man has learning? They're acknowledging this guy has, is brilliant. He's intelligent. He's got knowledge of some sort. How is it that he has learning and yet he's never studied in one of the rabbinical schools? How can this man know the scriptures having never been trained? He's not educated in the normal systems and yet he speaks intelligently. What's the source of his authority? Because it's apparent that his teaching is with authority. Sermon on the Mount finishes by people saying, this man teaches with authority, not like the scribes. Okay, so he does pose a threat because his his message comes with such force, with such power, power, with such clarity. And I think really this authority and this truth, there's a resonance with reality that Jesus' words has that the people who are open-hearted toward the Father say, this is truth. We can't deny it. There's a sense in which I think what the Jews are trying to do is, we need to figure out which box he fits in. Once we know which box or which rabbinical school he fits in, then we know how to refute him. We know how to hold the arguments. We know how to engage the debates. Once we know which box he's in, We know whether to ignore him or whether to defend him. Whether to affirm him or whether to refute him. But we haven't figured out which box he's in. It doesn't seem to fit a box. Can his words be trusted? Is he a true prophet? Again, culturally, the rabbinic schools were very strong. And most of the leaders of the Jewish people had studied with a particular rabbi, a master rabbi, And then they taught within the framework of that rabbinic tradition. And obviously we weren't there to hear them. But what I I read is that many of these people would 
very carefully, line by line, make their arguments as they explain Scripture, quoting the master under whom they had studied very carefully. Because they believe their authority as a teacher rested in the rabbi under whom they had studied. He's the one who got it right. We trust him and we articulate him and we footnote him all the time. Okay, whether that rabbi was, excuse me, John Calvin or Joseph Arminius or some other teacher, okay, modern day uh, issues. What's Jesus' response? Well, he has a response. Big surprise. Actually, no surprise. He knows exactly what they're thinking. He understands their question. And he begins with his own defense. And we find, first of all, he defends his words. Then he defends his actions. And the pivot comes right in the center. When he pivots from a defense of his words to his actions... He takes a really hot shot straight at the Jewish leaders. Okay, and it's a a classic Greek sort of defense argument trial stage. And even of this, Jesus is a master. So, where does he go? He simply starts out with a very simple statement. My teaching is not my own. Okay, I'm not an original thinker. Now, if any human being could ever have claimed to be an original thinker, it had to be Jesus, by whom all things exist. Okay? Jesus says, these aren't my ideas. I'm not an original thinker. My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. I'm not a brilliant, quote, original teacher, I'm a messenger. I'm a prophet. I'm passing on to you what I've heard, what I've seen, John says in multiple places. I'm that messenger. And the message I'm giving you is not original with me. I've learned it from my father. And I'm a faithful messenger. There's still a lot of quest, unfortunately, even in the Christian world, for a lot of, quote, original thought. A fresh way of reading the Bible. A new, insightful way of making sense out of this passage. And, unfortunately, millions of people go rushing to hear what might be the newest, greatest thing, just like the Athenians in Paul's day. Jesus goes straight to the human motive for these issues and says when there's a quest for original thought to be an original thinker, it's a quest for selfish glory. The person who wants to be original, who claims to have figured it out for the first time, speaks from that authority. He is seeking his own glory. Somehow Jesus sees right into the human heart. And he says, that's not what I'm doing. I'm here representing my father. Messengers, on the other hand, receive a message. And they seek the glory of the source of that message. And in this case, the source of the message is God the Father himself. And Jesus Christ, his son, 
essentially says in the Gospel of John, I've lived with him, I've spent, I've spent all my existence with him, I know him, and I'm telling you about him, trust me. This is the true revelation of God. This is the true disclosure of the true God. This, the test is here for us as well. There's an allure for the novel. We, we come to scripture even sometimes, and we want to see something new. Okay, we come, it's okay to see new things to us. There are many things that ought to be new to us, for us, fresh insights, but they should not be original in the sense that the church over the last 2,000 years hasn't been consistently teaching these sorts of things. The quest must be for the will of God, for the purposes of God. And Jesus goes on to make that, make that very clear. That's why the first commandment is love God. Trust God. Trust Jesus and learn to love him. It's in the love of God that we receive the knowledge of God. And it's that the scriptures point us to Christ. Christ points us to the Father. And then the scriptures, the New Testament scriptures, the, the apostolic literature particularly, points us back to Jesus and explains how all this fits together and the significance for us here today. And the church has been unpacking that and working on the implications for the people of God for 2,000 years. And to think that we ought to be attuned to something new is the height of arrogance and is a form of elitism rather than a humility that says God has existed, Jesus has revealed him to us, the scriptures testify to this Christ. And the people of God have been studying it, learning it, embracing themselves in it, immersing themselves in it, embracing his teachings, seeking to live them out faithfully. No human being's done it perfectly. No time in history has it been done perfectly. We're not going to get it done perfectly, but our hearts better be oriented toward knowing the will of God and loving that God as revealed to us in his son, Jesus Christ. Or, in the words of Thomas Oden, which I admit to a great deal of appreciation for, classical, consensual Christianity. And rather than seeking something new, birthing new movements and new denominations, we need to start paying attention to the long history of the church, how God has worked, and seek to live faithfully in that strand in our moment in time. Our moment in time has some differences, but the human heart has not changed. The issues are the same. And the truth of Jesus from 2,000 years ago is just as pointed to keeping us on the path of faithfulness as they were in his day. This is also a test for those of us who have the opportunity, and it's all of us, let's be honest, we're all messengers of God in some space, in some time, whether we're messengers to our children of what God has said, messengers to our neighbors, messengers in, our, in the workplace, or formal messengers in the preaching of the gospel in the community of the saints. <clears throat> Whatever, wherever our, our, our vocation of being a messenger is, we need to be very attentive to this. Are we committed to the will and communication of God? Or are we trying to be novel somehow? 
Are we committed to simply proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ as proclaimed for the last 2,000 years and resting in the sufficiency of Jesus in those ways? Or are we trying to be novel and creative? Do something different that's going to get it right this time. Or can we trust Jesus with the long journey of faith and we just join this stream of people who have followed Christ, seek to be faithful in our time, seek to grow in our love for him, seek to grow in our confidence in him, love him first, and then love our neighbor to the deepest of our capacity based on our faith. Because honestly, our faith becomes the limiting factor in our capacity to love our neighbor. And as our faith expands in God, our capacity to love our neighbor grows. Or as Clarice Martin said, rather than reading the Bible to assure ourselves we are right, we should read it to discover where we may not have been listening well. Jesus has this very poignant line. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching, he's talking about his specifically, but I think it stands true throughout history. He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether he's speaking from his own authority. And that that little line has some perplexing components to it. The one who wills to do God's will. The one who, some translate it, desire to do God's will. Some who are, the one who is committed to doing God's will. We might ask, what is God's will? Well, here's the point. We can't know, quote, all of God's will before we commit to doing it. And John John makes this so succinctly simple. In chapter 6, just the previous section, he says, this is the will of God. That you believe in Jesus. That you believe in me, whom God has sent. Because you see, unless you're willing to trust Jesus, you're not going to listen to what he has to say. But if you trust Jesus, and your heart is to will his will, it'll be a lifelong journey of discovery of what that means in every given circumstance of your life. It doesn't mean you'll get it perfectly. But if you trust him, and you have the life of God within you, and as he's going to say later here, the work of the Spirit that gives you the dynamic life of God to overflowing, if you have that, you are now willing to do his will. And you will discover his will through scripture, through the communion of the saints, by the prompting of the spirit in some of the most unusual, untested circumstances you face. You'll say, I have no idea what to do. And you have to say to yourself, but I trust Jesus. And Jesus cares more about the outcome than I do. He'll make it clear what his will is. And if I truly want his will, I really want the will of the fathers disclosed through his son, Jesus. You'll know the teaching. You'll hear it. You'll identify it. And you'll know it's true. And you'll give your life to it. That's the journey of faith.
And it's central to all the Christian life. It's the foundation of any and all obedience to Jesus. It's in that faith that we experience the validation of the truth of Jesus. And with that argument, Jesus does a pivot. And he puts his, he puts his accusers on the stand now. He's now the judge. And he comes at them very directly. And he says, <clears throat> has not Moses given you the law? None of you keep the law. Get tied back to the Romans reading. Okay, human problem. We have law. We know the right things to do. And there is nobody that has perfectly obeyed it. You know, Paul would probably say he got it almost as close as any human being could possibly do so. But when it came to the term covet, you shall not covet. He said, I stumbled. When I was really honest with myself, I was breaking the law. Rich young man, rich young ruler, I've kept all these things from my youth. The ascetic test for Jesus was, well, go, go sell your great wealth and give it to the poor. Come follow me. And his faith was demonstrated to be in the law, not in Christ. Because money then took precedence over Jesus. Jesus takes on his challengers. Classic Greek style of argument. He goes right to the heart of their self-righteous judgment. Their sense of having it right. And of being absolutely confident that Jesus had it wrong. And he simply says, So you claim to be faithful students of Moses' law. Of Torah. And yet you desire to kill me. And he's suggesting that is the ultimate violation of Moses' law. And he's referencing the work that he did back in John, as recorded in John 5.18, where Jesus healed the lame man who'd been lame for 38 years. He did it on the Sabbath day. And this is why the Jews, John 5.18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Okay, very clear statement. The leaders are trying to kill Jesus. They're trying to wipe him out after he healed this man on the Sabbath. And he said not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, which he was, but he was also calling God his own father. Okay, so they, they, they wanted to kill him. Very clear in John 5. Now he says to them, you say Moses is your father, and you obey the law given to Moses, although some aspects of the law, especially circumcision, precede Moses, back to Abraham. And yet, you're not obeying the law. And he's referencing here something very specific. They're treating him as a false prophet. And in the, in the book of Deuteronomy, kind of considered the apex of the law, at the very center of the book of Deuteronomy is this passage in which God, through Moses, tells the people of Israel, you came to the mountain before the Lord, and when I showed up, you were so terrified, you said, don't ever show up like this again or we're going to die. And so God tells Moses, okay, here's what you tell the people. I won't. I won't show up in this way again. And 
The next passage essentially explains what would be the incarnation of Jesus, which we know now looking back on it. And listen to these words. This is what God told Moses and Moses told the people of Israel. The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you should listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord... If the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Okay, and that was, by the rabbinic tradition, that was considered the very heart of the law of Moses. And Jesus is appealing to it, saying, listen, I am that prophet that God promised to Moses, the greater than Moses, the one like Moses, the new lawgiver, Sermon on the Mount, I'm here. I didn't come like God did on the mountain and terrified you. I'm here as a human being. You're not paying attention. You're not listening. And believe me, these Jews knew exactly who he was quoting. And they essentially said, no, you're not. You're a false prophet. We're going to kill you. We want to kill you. And Jesus says the reason you do that is because you actually don't have the heart intention of obeying God. You've chosen something else. Your heart's not toward God. Your will is not to do the will of the Father. So you're actually missing what God is doing. Completely missing it. And Jesus makes this argument from from a light argument to a heavier argument. very common rabbinic argument form, but he says, listen, there's the Sabbath law and there's the law of circumcision. Okay, circumcision is the older one. It's interesting. Came to Abraham, shows up again, reiterated with Moses. The Sabbath law, you know, creation, God gave rest on the seventh day, but he reiterates it prior to the covenant with Moses. I mean, it's, it's a big deal. And he says, and yet you make the decision that if you have a young boy who is born on a Sabbath, you circumcise him again on the Sabbath. So your women will give birth on Sabbath, and you will circumcise him on the Sabbath, thus violating Sabbath law. For why? For a higher law, a nobler cause bearing the mark of the covenant. Eight-day-old eight boy, 
Born on the Sabbath, he's going to be circumcised on the Sabbath, even though it's the Sabbath day. Now, how much more significant is it if an entire human being is reconciled to God and made whole from a lifetime of being crippled? How much more significant is that than circumcision? Yet you're, you're not paying any attention. You have this lens of law that you're reading everything through. And you don't understand the God of the law at all. Or you'd get this. Instead, you want to kill me. And these sorts of distortions show up all the time when people who claim to be the people of God, their hearts are not toward God. They don't understand the reconciling, redeeming work of the Father toward his creation. And they start picking apart what people are doing based on their own individual interpretation of the law without a heart toward the Father's goal of reconciliation. Jesus does not take an issue with them circumcising on the Sabbath day. He's just saying, listen, you're not being consistent. You don't understand. You're not paying attention here. If there is a weightier matter of the law, this is even weightier. The reconciling, the making whole of one of my own creatures. You are not judging righteously, is what he essentially says to them. This one work, and at this point, this is the one work that Jesus has done that he really points to, the healing of the lame man. This one work is very consistent with the nature of God. Very consistent with the purposes of God. Very consistent with the work and will of God. This is how God shows up in the world. And if you willed to do his will, you would know. You don't. And you're missing it. Instead, they don't know. They're accusing him as a false prophet. And they want him killed. Now what's interesting is they say, You've got a demon. Who's trying to kill you? When the last time he showed up, they tried to kill him. And I'm going to quote, of all people, John Calvin here now. For the reason why the Heavenly Father determined that his son should come out of the artisan's workshop instead of the schools of the scribes was to make the origin of the gospel stand out the more so that none should think it had been made up on earth or imagine that any man was its authority. The words of Jesus and the work of Jesus clearly demonstrated that he came from the Father and was to be trusted as such. Where is your will? What is its orientation? Do we will? Do we desire? And let me say, this is not Perfectly, 100%, every fabric of our being, it's our orientation. 
This is not about having a 100% perfect will to do the will. I'm bent toward the will of God. Lord, help me. It's faith as a grain of mustard seed. Is your longing toward the Father as revealed in his Son, Jesus Christ? That's how we come to him today. We come today at this table to reaffirm our faith and our orientation toward him. We come to him to declare our faith. Yes, Jesus, we believe. It's your death, your resurrection that has cleansed us from our sin and is giving us the life of the heavens, even in these broken, frail jars of clay. This is a time where we come to fellowship with Christ, who said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'll always be with you. And we can be 100% assured Jesus will meet us here today, even at this table, in this bread, in this wine, through our faith, by his gift to us. And we can be nurtured by him.